I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, welcome to Q with Tom Power. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in here for Tom. I don't have to tell you, Dolly Parton, one of the most successful country artists of all time. She has sold over 100 million albums, 100 million albums, uh, earned 11 Grammy Awards. She's built an empire that includes countless books and TV shows and movies. She's even got a theme park. After a career as colossal and as wide-ranging as Dolly's, you might be thinking to yourself, what's left to do? Well, here's your answer. Get out of here. Dolly Parton singing Magic Man by heart. She just sounds so amazing on that song. That is from her new album called Rockstar. You might have guessed from the title. For the first time ever, Dolly is tackling rock music head on with uh, covers of songs like Stairway to Heaven and We Are the Champions. She even wrote some new songs for the album, proving she really can do everything. Dolly Parton joined Tom Power from Nashville to talk about it and just see what happens to your body. See if your shoulders just come down a little bit, if you let out a little sigh of relief when you hear Dolly's voice say hello to Tom. Here we go. Dolly, how are you? Well, I'm good, Tom. How are you? I'm not bad. I love the record. Congratulations on it. Well, thank you. I'm as proud of it as anything I've ever done. I had some wonderful artists and some wonderful songs, so how could I miss? Truly, truly. Now, tell me the story behind this now. So you were, I remember this being in the news. You were you were inducted it was announced that you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you said, I'm not sure if I'm the right fit for that. Well, I did think that because they were telling me I was going to be inducted. And I thought, well, I have not earned that right because there's so many people I know in the rock field that have never even made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and should have. And I thought, well, why are they putting me in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? So I just kind of... I wasn't being controversial. I was just being concerned that I might not belong there. And then they convinced me that it was about more than just being in rock, that my music had influenced people through the years. And so when they go ahead, they went ahead and told me all that. So I said, well, then if that's how it is, I'll gracefully accept. Went in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and I thought, well, I can't just just be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without something rock and roll. So that's what inspired me to do the album. How was the ceremony? How was the induction? Well, it was great. I wrote a song for that, just for that night, telling about how that happened and kind of put to rest that little controversy and all that. But that I've been rocking since the day I was born, loving Elvis and Jerry Lee and Carl Perkins and all those great people, Little Richard. You know, I think we all kind of grew up on that, even those of us in country music. But I just really... uh, you know, just kind of went out and said that I accept 
and hey, I may do a rock album. Any of you rock stars want to join me if I do? And then they say, yeah. And sure enough, bunches of them did. You, you make a great point there that in the early days of country music, when you, especially when you were starting out in sort of like the 60s and 70s in country music, the, the, the lines between country and rock aren't what they are now. You know, you, know, you had Elvis who was making country music and, and rock music. You also have people like Conway Twitty, who was a country artist who also made rockabilly music. You're right. Like there was, there was less of a, you could be a rock and a country artist a little bit easier back then. Yeah, and, and so many of the great artists that were in rock were from Memphis, from Tennessee. They were just country people, like Carl Perkins with the blue suede shoes. And, of course, Chuck Berry, uh, he seemed to be so, even though he was just so commercial. You, you would think that Chuck was like a country person, the way he wrote the songs and the way he performed. And, of course, Little Richard, who everybody loved because he was just a, he was just, Little Richard, he was crazy <laughs> yeah, yeah. and exciting and yeah. all that. So, uh, but yeah, I think most of us in our young years, even the country kids were listening to that. And I remember the first time I ever heard the Beatles sing, I Want to Hold Your Hand. I think I was in high school at the time. And I thought that was the greatest sound, you know, that I'd ever heard. Oh, yeah, i tell you something. I think you'll understand. And so I really got a chance to actually get to be with some of the people that I had admired through the years, even as a grown-up. You dedicated the album to your husband, Carl. Um, My understanding, he's a big rock and roll fan. Is that right? Well, he's not a fan. He's a freak. (laughs) Well, he's a freak anyway. But he was... He loved Led Zeppelin, but he loved all the really hard. He loved the acid rock. The louder, the better. And all of the years we've been together, which is almost 60 years now in the spring, uh, that's what I've heard him play. I mean, he had very few other things. So I wanted to choose a few of his favorite songs to do in the album. And he always told me that I should do open arms with Kenny Rogers back when I was singing with Kenny. And, of course, I missed that opportunity. But I thought, well, I'll put this in the album and see if Steve Perry might want to sing it with me. And uh, they said, oh, you'll never get Steve Perry. He does not sing it anymore. I said, well, I'll ask. And he was more than happy to do it. And he sang so good. I was so honored to have him. Trying to imagine. The only country song. Yeah, go on. I'm sorry. I was just going to say the one song that did I did bring back from my past is a song uh, that I did with uh, Simon Le Bon, uh, the My Blue Tears. I wrote that when I was young. I had recorded it two or three times, even in the trio album with Linda and Emmy. But I thought I wanted a beautiful uh, rock ballad, and I thought that would make the perfect sweet song, especially with Simon kind of old world sounding, and then to add a big rock orchestration toward the end of that, which I thought made it, really pulled it together and made it believable to fit in the album. We have a little clip of that. Just take a listen to this. And I don't know when or if ever again I will 
Dolly Parton and Simon Le Bon from the band Duran Duran with the song called My, My Blue Tears. So yeah, that was on Coat of Many Colors. And then it was mm-hmm. on Trio, right? Yes, and even before that, I have a real surprise for you. Goldie Hawn was the very first person to record that. When Back when Goldie um, was uh, on a show called Laugh-In, yeah. long before you were probably even born. But that's when she was just a young girl. I had actually recorded it, and then she heard it. And so she was the first person outside of myself, of course. Uh, but she did it and did a beautiful job. She did a country album. And uh, I thought that was a good choice. And then, uh, like you mentioned, it was in my coat of many colors, Linda Nemi, and I did it on the trio album. And I thought, well, that's one of my husband's favorite songs that I wrote is why, uh, another reason why I recorded it in this album. Do you remember why you wrote it? What inspired it? Well, no, I don't think I, I, I don't always have to have a, a personal reason, although there's pieces of me woven in and out all my songs, but I just like writing those kind of old world Appalachian kind of sounds that sounds like they might have come over, you know, some Elizabethan sound to them. <clears throat> and so I just love writing songs where I can do that old world harmony like that. I did all three parts harmony on the, on the song. But I just remember liking to write those kind of songs about, to me, in my mind, when I was writing that, I was picturing some boy going off to war and and the girl and, you know, he not, not knowing if they were ever going to see each other again. I don't know when or if ever again I will see your sweet face, but I fear it's forever goodbye. And, you know, though I can't say why, but... You know, like why there's even more and why you go off. So I just remember thinking I wanted to write songs like movies. I do write songs that kind of paint pictures. But the one that I have loved, he has left me and gone. And I'm in no mood for to hear your sad Well, you know what it's like for other people to sing your songs as well. I mean, for people who know you as a, uh, a kind of a groundbreaking singer and, and big country star, you came up in, in Nashville and country music at the time when you were both a, a singer with Porter Wagner and a big singer on TV and on records, but also writing songs for other people, kind of like Willie Nelson was at the time, kind of like Chris Christopherson was at the time. What does that still mean to you when other people take on your songs? You know, it's one of the greatest compliments that you could ever have, especially when you take yourself as serious as I do as a songwriter. I think that's my favorite thing that I do, loving, feeling like I've left something in the world today that wasn't there yesterday. And then to hear somebody take a song of mine, and especially like, a, for instance, I Will Always Love You. But I- Whitney Houston could take that song and take my little simple heartbreaking song and then turn it into such a worldwide big production and yet still keep the uh, the emotion in it. But, you know, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, my God, I had no idea that that little song could be that big and that good.
So it's a joyful feeling when to hear somebody else, uh, you know, do your songs, period, and then how, how they do them. A lot of people say, oh, you must hate it when somebody does one of your songs and they do this and that. I said, no, I don't, because I love hearing how other people interpret what I had written. I know I do that with other people's songs. I'll take a song, uh, you know, and, and, and do my take on it because what it means to me as a singer. So I'm always honored when anybody just wants to do my songs for any reason. What was this thing I was reading on the way in here? And I, I, I didn't know this story, that that song was offered to Elvis first. What's the story on that one? Well, Elvis, no, I had already had a number one record on it. It came out, I had an album, the Jolene album came out, I think in 1972, somewhere in there. Yeah. And I Will Always Love You was also on that album. But I had a number one uh, song on I Will Always Love You back during the, in the early 70s. And it was a it became a very popular song. Everybody seemed to like the song and it was easy to sing. But Elvis had loved the song and wanted to record it. And I was gonna go down to the studio. They'd invited me down to hear him record it. And I'd never met him. I was so excited. Then Colonel Tom called me the day before and said, You know, we don't record anything with Elvis unless we have the publishing. And so I said, Well, I hate to hear that because I was really looking forward to Elvis doing it, but I can't give you the publishing because I had just started my publishing company at the time, and that was my my most important copyright at the time and still is. But um, I just wouldn't let him do it, and it broke my heart, and I'm hoping it broke Elvis's heart <laughs> because I know Priscilla said he loved it, and she said he was singing that song to her when they came off the courthouse steps when they got divorced. And uh, so I knew he he loved the song, so I just wouldn't let him have it. And then I was glad I kept the publishing after Whitney did her big version of it. But I would still love to have heard Elvis sing it, and that's why I wrote the song that's in the Rockstar album called I Dreamed About Elvis. Good on you for for sticking sticking to your guns back then, but you know that's not easy to do back then. No, but I uh, like I've always said it is called the music business, and I was trying to take care of the business end of the music business, and I was starting my publishing company, and I knew that I wanted to claim my own self and my own songs, and uh, so I just wasn't willing to do it even for Elvis. Fair enough. Let's uh, let's listen to another song on the record that I really liked. Me started on politics. Now, how are we to live in a world like this? Greedy politicians, present and past, they wouldn't know the truth if it bit them in the ass. Now, tell me what is truth? Have we all lost sight of common decency, of the wrong and right? How do we heal this great divide? Do we care enough to try? I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. My guest is the legendary Dolly Parton. We're talking about her new album, Rockstar. That's a song called World on Fire from that record. I heard that song came to you in the middle of the night. 
Well, it did. I had finished the album, and uh, Kent Wells and I had decided 30 songs is a plenty. So <laughs> we, uh, th- yeah, Kent, Kent said, Dolly, you can't record every rock and roll song that's ever been written. And so we had put it to bed, and then we were going to pick and choose, you know, what we were going to do. And that very night, I just kind of, you know, woke up just with a, just woke up. And I just kind of felt like I needed to write something. So I went in the kitchen, made me some coffee. And I'd been watching the news, of course, as I had been and do, just kind of staying up on things. And I uh, I think the night before I had felt heavy hearted, but I didn't know I was going to write a song. So I just got up. And that song started coming to me, liar, liar, the world's on fire. What are you going to do when it all burns down? And so I just started writing it, and it just all started coming together. Daylight, I called Kent. I said, we got to call another session. I've written another song that has to go on this album. So we did, and um, I just really am proud of the song. You don't have a lot of songs like it, Dolly. I know, I don't. But I figured... uh, this needed to be said, and I felt led to say it, just thinking about what we're doing to ourselves, to each other, what we're doing to this world. And I'm I'm concerned about humanity and civilization, and I just don't get it. Why grown people, smart, intelligent people, are allowing so many things to happen that don't have to be happening if we would just try a little harder and be a little... Um, more willing to make things work properly instead of just grouping up in little pockets here and there and just, you know, like my mouth's bigger than your mouth, my bomb's bigger than your bomb, my daddy's bigger than your daddy kind of attitude to where, you know, till they just allow the this people to suffer. And I just am the kind of person I feel for everybody. I feel for myself as well. I don't, I want to stay around. I want to have a world to live in. I feel like that comes from your your sort of spirituality, your your faith. I've heard you talk about that before. It does. I mean, it's like I'm. Uh, I, I just really feel like we could be more caring, more giving, more decent as people, and allow a, a lot more good stuff in than to to just kind of grab on anything to make a point and, and then we've made a point whether we continue to believe it or not we hang on to it because we think well if we turn it loose we're losers well we're going to be losers if we don't turn that kind of thinking loose so i i do think a lot of it comes from my uh my spiritual background and that's what keeps me motivated is my creative and spiritual energy that's what gets me through so much stuff and the fact that i am able to write down what i think and feel and see uh, then that's my weapon and my tool, and that's how I uh, communicate with the world. I think you got a good shot and at it, God. too, you know? We're done? Pardon me? What, what, uh, everything, no, on. I said, and with God. No, I oh, didn't say we're God. done. Oh, and with God. I thought you said, and we're done. I said, oh, my God, Dolly. Holy moly. You know? <laughs> I said that's how I communicate with myself and with God. I felt like no, I, we're not I got struck by no. lightning. I thought that's what happened there, you know. No, I was just going to say, but if we don't shape up, we are done. <laughs> All of us are done. <laughs> I think you got a, I think you got a good opportunity for people to listen to you because I don't think I know another artist that people who who can't seem and this is going to sound trite, but I don't mean it that way. That people who can't seem to agree, agree on anything, people who are so unbelievably divided right now. You seem to be a good bridge 
that everyone can seem to, to, you know what I mean? Like people who disagree about everything can seem to meet on your music. Well, that's good. I hope so. I've been around a long time. I care about people. I care about everybody. I really do. And I just care about things that matter, should matter, and should matter more. And I just, uh, I think people kind of know me. I've been around for six decades, and it's kind of like a familiar face. They're used to seeing me and hearing me, and they've watched me in the movies. They've heard me on the radio and seen me on TV. So I'm kind of like a family member. I've, you know, I've, uh, I've become a household word, so to speak. In every house but home, as the song says, <laughs> you know, stay going all the time doing my stuff. But I think that uh, the fact that people know that who I am, where I came from, how, and the kind of people I come from, I think they'll be more prone to listen to somebody like that than just a stranger in town. So I just kind of feel like a family member to everybody. And so it's almost like if your mama tells you something, They'll listen, or your older sister, or a favorite aunt. That's how I want people to think of me. Like, well, we might ought to listen. She might know something. So I don't know. That's kind of how I feel about it. Because I feel like the world is my family, and I'm worried about us. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom. You're in the middle of his conversation with Dolly Parton about her new album called Rockstar. And I want to play you a bit of another one of the songs off that record. This is Dolly Parton and Let It Be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, She's standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Okay, I said that was going to be Dolly Parton and let it be, but really, it's Dolly Parton and Paul McCartney. And later on in the tune, Ringo Starr joins in too, uh, performing Let It Be. Leave it to Dolly Parton to be able to reunite the living members of one of the greatest bands of all time. I want to know how it happened, don't you? Here's more of Tom Power speaking to Dolly Parton. I loved your version of Let It Be on this record with uh, Paul McCartney and with Ringo Starr. You kind of reunited the Beatles for for this. But I didn't think about that until later when I just, when I was going to do uh, Let It Be, which is one of my favorite songs, and I called Paul because I'd met Paul a few times, kind of not friends, but but I knew him. We were acquaintances, and we're nice to each other when we say, hey, good to see you again, that kind of thing. But then when I recorded the song, I when I, I reached out to see if he would be willing to sing on it with me, and he said, 
Well, I'll play, too, if you want me to. I'd love to sing with you, and I'll play the piano, which that was like over the top, and I was excited to death. And it was only after we we uh, put the vocals down that we did that that I thought, hey, I should put Ringo. I should replace the drums we have on here and have Ringo to play, because that is the last of the Beatles. But I think at that time they tell me that Mick Fleetwood uh, and uh, Peter Frampton were in the studio where uh, Ringo was. And so Mick put some percussion on, and Peter Frampton played that great turnaround. And I did something else with Peter, too, on the album. But I thought, wow, this is an all-star record now. And then to have the two Beatles that are left on that, I, I was proud of that. I didn't know you knew Paul coming up. I figured you guys, maybe, I figured, yeah, maybe you guys did meet in the 70s or 80s or something like that. Well, you know, first time I met uh, Paul McCartney was on the Porter Wagner show when we were doing a show out at what used to be Opryland here in Nashville. Paul was over there doing something. He was in town and he came by, he came backstage where Porter and I were working. And he, I think he wanted to meet Porter at that time. And so, uh, I, I, that's when I first met him. So, of course, we made our acquaintances then. And then every now and then I'd see him backstage of a show that we were working on separately together. You know, we're, we were not together, but we were on the same show. And then I'd see him at a restaurant. We went to a, a, a restaurant that we often went to in L.A. And I'd seen him there a couple of times, just say, hey, walk over to the table. So it was just sweet and friendly. But I never had the chance to sing, so this was a big deal to get to sing with all these great artists. And Elton John, Elton and I, every time we get together backstage, we start singing all the great old hits, country hits, because he loves country music. And so when I got ready to do the album, I loved Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. So I called to see if he would uh, sing on it, and he did, and it was great. Don't let the sun All these old kind of classic rock artists love country music. But yeah, you mentioned Elton. I just had Elton on maybe about a couple of years ago. We talked about how much we love country music. I was just thinking with the Beatles, uh, they recorded country music. Uh, Ringo uh, sang Act Naturally, that old that old Buck Owens song. Yeah, I know. They love that. And I can tell most people, I think any musical person, uh, writers or singers, I think you're interested in listening to all kinds of music because you may think, well, maybe I'll pull a little something from this. Maybe I'll pull a little something from that. So I think if you're smart, that's a, that's a good thing to do. Just how country people always listen to rock, R&B. I love all the music of the world. I love some more than others, of course, but you will get great ideas uh, for little rhythms or little licks or like ideas for songs or you know, just the tempo of a song, you know, how you kind of might go into some moody little feel that's based on something you heard in R&B, but it still can be country. So I do think that all music, I think people do listen to other forms of music. 
One of my favorite tracks on the record is a, is a later song. You did um, Wrecking Ball by, by Miley Cyrus. Don't you ever say I just walked away I will always want you I can't live a lie running for my life I will always want you I came in like a wrecking ball I never hit so hard um, Miley Cyrus your, is your goddaughter, from from what I understand. Yeah, well, actually, she's my fair god goddaughter. I used to, when uh, Billy Ray Cyrus had this big, huge hit, "Achy Breaky Heart," back so many years ago. Well, we toured together. We worked on the road together, and uh, Billy's wife was pregnant with Miley during that time. So Billy Ray said, "Well, when uh, this child is born, you're gonna have to be its godmother." And I said, "Well." Busy as we all are, I don't know that I could be a great godmother, fill in all the gaps that a godmother's supposed to fill in, but I'll be her fairy godmother. So anyway, she became my little special little girl, and uh, so I didn't see her all that often till we started working on the Hannah Montana show. And then uh, she, she opened up a whole new world of young fans for me and then we got really to spend more time together and from then on we've just kind of been uh, been at it and we love each other and we love how we sing together and so I love doing Wrecking Ball on this album I had to do that one it's one of my favorite Miley songs and so I, I, I was real proud of how that one turned out don't you ever say I just walked away I will always love you. It's, it's an interesting life the two of you have led, you know, going from singing, the, you know, these old country songs to, from, to TV to ha- having this sort of worldwide fame and a lot of people's attention on you, which is both positive and negative. Have you given her any advice over the years on how to handle all that? No, I'm just there for her. I always say I don't like to give advice. I've got a lot of information, you know, if you want some information but Molly's just always seemed to know, like myself, who she is. You know, she had to go through, you know, when she was going through all of the changes that she was going through and being criticized and people thinking, oh, my God, she's going off the deep end or whatever. I really felt like at that time that that Hannah Montana character was so strong, such a worldwide uh, thing. But that was a character, not a person. Molly Cyrus played Hannah Montana, and Molly Cyrus was having the need to be uh, Molly Cyrus. So she made a lot of uh, choices that a lot of people didn't agree with. But I always saw what she was doing, and I always prayed for her. I always wanted her to kind of make sure she didn't go over the, you know, the the total edge. And she, I think she knew what she was doing. I really do. And I think she still does. Molly's so smart, so talented. She's a great writer. Her comedic timing is unbelievable. And so I think Molly will always have a, a great career. Even on television, I'd love to see her have another 
show of her own. But Molly's so gifted, and I just I just love that I got to sing one of the songs on the album with her. One one last question before we go, because at this stage of your career, it was surprising to a lot of people for you to make a record in this genre and to make it so authentically and for it to be such a great rock record. What's one thing left that you haven't done in your career that you'd like to try, that you'd like to do? Well, I am in the middle of it right now. I am doing my life story as a Broadway musical, and I have written the music and a lot of it, of course, will be some of the hits, but I've written a lot of original music to carry my story. And I've co-written the book with a girl named Maria Shriver. I mean, not Maria Shriver, <laughs> uh, Maria Slaughter. Uh, and I used to work with her dad, George Slaughter. He was a producer in uh, in Hollywood. So I've written the book with her, and we've got it already complete. But I'm working on the music now, recording the music. So uh that's something I've been wanting to do for years, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm glad. I'm, I, hope it's, I hope it's an occasion that I can talk to you about country music again, Dolly. Thanks so much for making the time for us today. Oh, you can always talk to me about country music, but right this moment, I'm a rock star. You're right. I forgot about that. <laughs> love it. Love you to see you, Dolly. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. That was Tom Powers' conversation with the one and only Dolly Parton, whose new album is called Rockstar. Call her a rock star, call her a country star, call her anything you want. She could sing anything in the whole wide world. You're listening to Q. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. When you think about the folks who introduced the sounds of Indian classical music to North America and to Europe. You think of Ravi Shankar, who introduced so many people to the sound of the sitar. And then you've got Ali Akbar Khan, who introduced a lot of audiences to the incredible sound of the sarod. His son, Alam Khan, has continued to follow in Ali Akbar Khan's footsteps on the sarod. Have a listen to this. So the sarod, which you're hearing, if you're not familiar, is a plucked, stringed Indian instrument, and it makes uh, a deeper sound than the sitar you might be familiar with. And Alam, in his own right, is a very respected sarod player. He grew up in California in the mix of a lot of different musical worlds, and he's never shied away from exploring how the sound of the sarod he grew up hearing from his father can overlap with Western sounds. He even played the Sorot at hip-hop shows back in the day. Uh, Alam's latest record is called The Resonance Between. He partners with sitarist Arjun Verma and San Francisco's Del Sol String Quartet, and they blend Eastern ragas with Western classical music traditions on the album. Uh, to talk about it and to introduce you to a new song, Alam Khan joined Tom Power from the Bay Area in California. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, so, talk to me a little bit about about this this record. I really, I really do love it. Is there something appealing to you about sort of mixing uh, classical music traditions here? Yeah, I mean, um, for me, first off, uh, making 
classical contemporary music or Indian classical contemporary, if you will, is something that I'm passionate about because I was born in the Bay Area and exposed to so many different influences of music. So at times, the system of Indian classical in its most traditional form can feel not enough for my creative spirit, if you will. Uh, I want to be able to take those influences that I have, the, the love of other sounds and music and styles, and be able to go beyond or bend the tradition. But I only think people that have learned the tradition actually know how to do this tactfully and with integrity. Otherwise, it just becomes, as my father would say, confusion music. Confusion music. I really like that. <laughs> that was his that was his line. And I hear it in my head every time I make something. And it's like, we're not going to go there. We're going to make something that is hopefully timeless and an artistic statement and is really thoughtful in what we're doing. I mean, it's an in, that's an interesting dilemma that you, you face when you do that. And you're not the first artist to face it and, and to talk to me about about facing it. You know, whether you're doing this through blending of, you know, um, Indian and, and uh, you know, English and Austrian and, and North American, you know, classical music styles. Or like, you know, I know that you were, you know, you, you played Sarod with hip hop and, and with hip hop acts. How do you balance that? Um, I don't want to call it fusion, but like, how do you how do you balance putting your own stamp on this music while right. respecting the traditions of the instrument itself? It's challenging, and I ask myself that question still to this day. Sometimes I'm like, how does one perceive me? Because for me, I grew up in such a unique way with these different kinds of cultural mixings going on between my American and Indian cultures and the music and the art and and the people, et cetera, that it, it's always been a, it's always been a, a kind of unique for sure, but also very confusing at times from a young boy into adulthood. So I know that confusion that I have in myself or that mixing of things. And then it took me a long time to find that world between the worlds. And now I feel like I'm at a place where I've, I can create and I want to create from that unique space between those worlds because that sound, that music is me. It's my upbringing as a mixed race, mixed cultured uh, person. And the problem is more or the challenge is more, I guess, how do I present that to other people externally? And I'm not sure if I know what that is exactly. It's just me living my life. What What's the wrong way to do it? Oh, I would say like with anything, just being cheesy about it, being corny. I mean, for me, I know who I am at the core and I remain that way. And when I do the music, I try to, um, I, I exemplify, I do this with, with the integrity, I know the art forms that I'm working with. So that's the difference. If someone wants to make fusion music or something and they're like, 
oh, I got to do something with hip hop or rap or whatever, and they've barely listened to it. It's going to sound like confusion music, but I grew up on hip hop music. And so I know it inside and out. And I also made stuff that was purely hip hop earlier in my life. So now I, I'm versed in that. I know how to. So that makes sense. You know what I mean? That's just hip hop, for example. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. The, the, the wrong way to do it on the flip side would be to be a hip hop artist and say things like, oh, I want to combine this with like, quote unquote, Indian music without understanding the complexities and traditions and history, histories and diversity of, of, of Indian classical music. For someone wanting to explore, there's nothing wrong with that. And the intention is pure. Great. But if you're going to do something like my project, my group Grand Tapestry, which is this big project, we've made a couple albums merging hip hop with Indian classical. Live life well, all about love. Give it while I got it going vision from that is very much thought out and because I know those both of those forms. I would not suggest someone do that. Otherwise, they're looking kind of just like, all right, you know, you know, know your role, know your place and make music accordingly. Well, uh, I'll, I'll stop myself from continuing to complain about fusion music to you. <laughs> and I'll, I want to talk a little bit about how you got into playing Sarod in the first place. I mean, you mentioned there a couple of times that your dad, Ali Akbar Khan, the incredible Sarod player. Very, very famous. Uh, but I know as a kid, you, you began playing playing the guitar. It wouldn't have surprised me if you had never gone to the Sarod, and you wouldn't be the first child of a you know a legendary you know uh, musician who's closely identified with an instrument to not play that instrument. But I heard you you yeah. became attracted to your dad's music and his playing through your interest in like grunge from Seattle. I was listening to, yes, a lot of grunge music, alternative, hip-hop, different things like that. And my friends were listening to it. That's kind of the culture here in the Bay Area or any American kid. And um, it was, I didn't really hear the music. I didn't recognize, I, or I, I was listening, but I didn't hear it. Or I was hearing it, but I wasn't listening, you know, for to the Indian classical my father's playing. And one day, it just kind of clicked, and it was like I recognized it. It was like recognizing an old friend. I finally heard it. And then eventually I heard the calling to dedicate my life to this and play this instrument. I found what my father was playing, took me to those places that these other musical styles was doing. And it was like, wow, that's reaching those places and in a uniquely different way too. And it's not like I stopped listening to other kinds of music. It was just like, well, now... Now I hear what my father is doing, and this is absolutely incredible. Uh, and it haunted me in a good way. That's a nice feeling when the feeling you're looking for from listening to grunge music or just look, listening to underground music or music in general, that yeah. you can get that from your own dad's playing. That's, that's not nothing. Absolutely. And grunge music specifically like Nirvana or Pearl Jam, Alice Soundgarden, whatever it is, Alice in Chains, it's, it's pretty, it's, it can be pretty dark at times, that kind of sound. And um, we don't think of it as like that in Indian music. There can be scales and melodic things that are very akin or similar to that, but it's not perceived as being like this thing. It's like, that's the classical tradition. And this is a melody or a raga that's based in something that's very similar. So I found that correlation between rock or hip hop beats or whatever it is and the music that we're doing to be quite interesting. I, I think about that to this day, actually, that 
one may perceive this melody as being, you know, associated with something that's heavy or dark or emotional or whatever it is. But Indian music takes you to those places, but it doesn't, but it resolves. It doesn't leave you in those places. It brings you back to a state of like being neutral or calm or peace. A lot of these other songs and other music styles, they leave you in that heavy state, whereas Indian music brings you through all them in almost a more refined way, perhaps, and then brings you back to a state of, of, of completion. How involved did your dad get in, in your learning the music and the instrument? Uh, oh, very much so. I mean, the more I showed interest, the stricter that he got. It was he, They gave me the freedom that he didn't have as a child with his father to play the music if I wanted to, him, him and my mother. And then they, they got, got me a guitar and they were happy about that and this and whatever. But ultimately, my father just said, you know, I want you to be happy and I want you to uh, live your life however it makes you happy. Of course, it made him happy knowing that he had me. Uh, eventually, years later, showing how much uh, promise I had to be his successor, uh, you know, his chosen one, if you will, he would tell me many times and confide in me, which is a lot of pressure. Um, but uh, it's a blessing. And yeah, as I got more serious, he got more serious, basically. What, and we just went like that. What did that look like? I mean, I, I interviewed uh, Zakir Hussein not that long ago, and he was telling me how his dad would wake him up early in the morning, you know, before school and, and you know, sort of drill him on the traditions of the instrument before he would even play tabla at all, before he would he, he would touch it. Well, you know, that 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 was still Zakir Ji. I mean, he, that, that is still kind of older generation. So it's like they did things like that. My father had that in spades. It was way more extreme than that 18 hours a day in a militaristic um upbringing which was quite intense it's there's a whole it's it's like almost like folklore mythology at this time the things my father had to go through right. and the, the things my grandfather did but he did not want that relationship with me so basically when it was time for music he told me what was needed to be done he didn't shy away from saying what you need to do to uh, get to this place or that place but he didn't force me. He would he would just say, this is what you need to do. And if I wasn't doing it, it's like, well, that's because you're not. And then when I was serious, you seriously studying, he would be very serious in the way he trained. And, you know, he, he could just give you a look or say a small comment that, that puts you in your place pretty quickly <laughs> <laughs> and kept you in check and humble. And you're like, OK, it's like. Yeah, you know, the 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 top of uh, one mountain is the beginning of the next, and, and there we go. And and you couldn't even say, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about, because he's like well established as one of the great <laughs> one of the great surround yeah, players yeah. of his generation. Well, I definitely talked back many times. That was one of the things, but uh, which he probably, you know, as a much older man uh, from an from born in 1922 to this young Californian kid, uh, he was probably just like, you know learn how to, you know, this is not the way you talk, but at the same time, we didn't have that relationship that he, he didn't want that relationship. Yeah. So that's what he got. Balancing father and guru, you know, teacher uh, is a tricky thing. And it, it was messy at times, but the love is, is the, it, the love is the underlying overlying, the most important thing that we had between each other through everything. I mean, that really comes through on when you listen to your music, you know, the, the love and, and reverence and just appreciation you have for the music that your father um, handed on, on to you. And plus, you know, the very authentic music of growing up as a kid in the Bay Area, listening to hip hop, listening to grunge, and in, in this case, listening to, you know, um, more, more Western classical music. You chose a track from this record called The Resonance B Between for us to play. You chose uh, Embark. Can you set up the song for us? 
Yeah, my name is Alam Khan, and you're listening to Embark off of the album The Resonance Between. Gorgeous music. That was Alam Khan, Arjun K. Verma, and the Del Sol Quartet with Embark. It's from their album, The Resonance Between. Before that, you heard Tom Power's conversation with the acclaimed Sarod player, Alam Khan. That's it for Q today. Tomorrow on the show, it's Dennis Goulet, a Cree Métis filmmaker who will tell you about directing a couple of episodes in the third and final season of Reservation Dogs and why showing love and joy is an integral part of portraying Indigenous stories on screen. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.